HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. coming on again today. It is Greenhorns Radio, and I'm your host, Severin Fleming of the Greenhorns, and we are here today, or I am here today at Essex, New York, at Essex Farm, here to interview Kristen Kimball, who's recently published a wonderful memoir of her uh, love affair with farming and with her farmer husband, Mark, in Essex, New York, and the book is called A Dirty Life, The Dirty Life. And it's published by Scribner's, and that's why we're talking to her, but she's also a part of this amazing farm. And so I thought we would start with asking you, Kristen, to describe this landscape that you're in. Sure. Um, We are on 500 acres in Essex, New York. Um, The land is mostly flat with a small rise where our sugar bush is. Um, The soil is excellent in some places. Um, and in other places, it's rather heavy. And the whole farm tends to be a little bit wet, so we prefer um, dry years to wet years around here. Um, you're wet, and you're because you are in the valley, in the valley that's below the Adirondacks in the Champlain Valley, which drains into Lake Champlain. And Lake Champlain, for those of you who don't know your geography of the northern kingdoms, is between Vermont and New York. And if you think about the Hudson River going up, it kind of, like, goes up, and then there's this Lake Champlain. And um, would you mind talking about the, this um, valley and the, the wind that comes through and the water that comes through to feed the watershed of New York? Oh, well, anyway, when I was talking to some other people around there, they were talking about how the zoning laws around here are such that they protect the water um, because Adirondack Park was in part designed to protect the water of New York City. And so a lot of the reason why there's low density around here is because of that. Well, anyway, it was given to me as a reason why there's so many young farmers in this region. But another reason I was told of why there's a lot of young farmers in this region is because of Essex Farm, which seems to be an incubator of um, agrarian energy. Maybe, maybe, I will let, maybe I will let Mark talk about that more. Um, maybe you could talk about when you first came here the beginning of your book and the beginning of your journey in farming, 
and just give us a little sense of that. Um, we got here in 2003, and I was a city girl. I had never farmed a day in my life, but I had fallen madly in love with this man who was a farmer um, and fallen madly in love with the idea of farming. Um, we arrived at the farm in about this time of year. It was about the 1st of November, and it was um, land that had not been used for about 20 years. So everything was kind of falling down. The fence lines were falling down. The, the barns were definitely falling down. Um, but the land was just ready and waiting for um, a couple of energetic farmers to take it over and, and start doing something on it. What, what came first? Which part of our agriculture ad adventure? Um, we actually started pretty much everything first. The first livestock we got was a milk cow named Delia, who was with us until um, just this year. Um, I should probably explain that the premise of our farm is um, we're, a, we're a CSA, but we're year-round, and we try to provide um, a complete, full, interesting diet for our members. Um, and they come every week, and they, they take free choice of everything that we produce, which is beef, pork, chicken, eggs, um, about 50 different kinds of vegetables, grains, uh, um, dry beans, maple syrup, and uh, milk. So, yeah, that's what we do. So it's like a grocery store. We try to, we try to supplant the grocery store around here. Um, we even make our own soap. Oh, my God. Yeah. So... So here you arrived, and I'm, I'm looking around in the farm, and we've been threshing um, dry beans in this afternoon. And, you know, the farm is not perfectly, um, perfectly painted, and it is definitely an old farm. So what was it like moving into a farm that, you know, is typical of, of many of the farms that young farmers move into, which is, you know, dilapidated and somewhat abandoned agricultural infrastructure? Maybe you can even describe, like, um, why, why having that um, infrastructure be dilapidated is a disadvantage? Uh -huh. Even start there. Um, well, on top of everything else that we were putting together our first year, we had a lot of repairing to do. Um, yeah, we had to fix fence lines. We had to buy a lot of equipment. There were buildings that needed to be torn down um, and carted away, and there were other buildings that needed to be fixed up. And like you said, it's still certainly far from... Um, it doesn't look like a gentleman's farm, let me put it that way. Um, it's pretty rough around the edges, and it seems like every time we think about doing something cosmetic to it, some sort of agricultural reason um, is more compelling, you know. Um, so, you know, it's still not what you would call, um, you know, a, a, an aesthetically beautiful farm, but um, the land is really great, and, uh, and what we're doing on it has always been interesting to us, so. Well, well and certainly the, the camaraderie and attitude of the farmers is, so positive. It's um, really a pleasure to sit around this table and um, be in the presence of so many people who are so positive about their work and so comfortable in themselves, um, which I think doesn't need paint. Um, so you were here and you arrived in 2003, and at that time you didn't have two little beautiful babies, um, and you hadn't really been a farmer. Um, what was the first part that you really liked and got good at, and what were the parts that weren't your style, and how did you and Mark kind of divide the labor of farming among yourselves? Um, our first year especially, we had a lot of power struggles about who was going to be in charge of what, and we broke it down roughly that I would be in charge of animals and Mark would be in charge of plants. Um, of course, because we're such a mixed farm, those 
two things overlapped wildly. You know, we had to then discuss who was going to be in charge of compost <laughs> because compost is neither really a plant nor an animal. Um, but I guess my heart from the beginning was with the horses. Um, we do most of our traction uh, with draft horses here, and horses have always been um, um, a beautiful part of my life. And I, was, I felt really lucky to have them back in my life after being a city person for 10 years. Um, so we got our first pair of horses um, in February um, after we moved here, and, and my heart was always, was always there before anything else. Um, I'm trying to think of what I really didn't like. That first year, we were doing everything on the cheap. Uh, we didn't have a lot of startup capital, and so we were trying not to buy anything that we didn't absolutely need. And I think the worst part of that year was that we were too cheap to actually invest in um, plumbing so that we could move water around more easily. So we ended up moving buckets of water around all over the farm that year, um, and I got really sick of carrying cold, heavy buckets of water that would slosh on my pants and then freeze. <sighs> Well, there's a lesson. Um, maybe you um, maybe you would have guidance for people who are in that same position of you know, and this is this is on this is on really great terms. And you had an amazing land owner who saw the vision and was compelled by your um, instincts to farm and thought that you were doing a good job and was really supportive. Um, so you didn't have that kind of additional um, drama to deal with. But, but if you were giving counsel to other young farmers who were in this position and, say, moving from their last years of apprenticeship into their first years of farm management, um, the kinds of conversations that may have made your first year a little easier? Well, we did get extraordinarily lucky with um, the landowner who helped us. Lars Kulisade is just an amazing man, and he owned this land but didn't live here. Um, and I think in some ways that made it easier for both parties because he was able to say, um, here's a free lease for a year and go ahead and do what you want on the farm. And that extended to, you know, if, you, if we needed to tear down a building or build something, he was, he was quite fine with that. Um, I think advice for young farmers who are starting their first project on their own. I think, although it sounds crazy about the water, the story that I just told you, um, I think we were right to not go into debt in order to, um, to start our farm. We were starting a venture that you know, we had no idea if we were going to succeed. And in my experience, my limited experience, I think debt and farming don't really get along that well. They are not good friends. Um, farming is too unpredictable to really um, to want to be paying off paying off unnecessary debt. So um, I guess my advice would be, you know, be patient and find a, a landowner who's very willing to work on your terms. Um, and to, uh, you know, if you need to, farm where you are for a while. I was just um, talking with you, Severin, about um, our friend Adam Wilson, who is now uh, running Bread and Butter Farm in Charlotte. And when we met Adam, he was living in a rented house um, he had his, his cows stabled down the road, and he had built a bread oven in his backyard, and he was doing it, even though he didn't have his land and he, nothing was perfect. He was making it work, and that was really inspiring to me, and I think it should be inspiring to other young farmers who um, feel blocked by you know, not having their perfect 100 acres um, available at their fingertips. So kind of bottom line, don't, don't rush in or don't go into debt. Don't go into debt. Um, don't go into debt that you can't pay off. Um, so now, speaking of not having debt, one thing that's great about your life and having a little bit of a hybrid life as a writer slash farmer is that you're 
a part of, I would say, a really a powerful tribe of kind of hybrid life, life earners, of people who are living and practicing a land ethic um, and part of a commercial farm operation, but who have some off-farm income. Um, maybe you could just speak a little bit about that. And so many poet, poet farmers I've been meeting lately also. Um, well, just first on a personal level, I find that the combination of farming and writing makes for a pretty darn happy life. Um, if I were just farming, I would miss the, the, uh, the deep intellectual sedentary energy of writing. And if I were just writing, I would miss the, the physical and equally intellectual challenge of, uh, of farming. And for me, the two of them just go together really nicely. Um, in addition, writing has made it easier, easier for us to buy land um, because I have an income coming from off the farm. My deal has always been, you know, the farm needs to support itself and support us, but if I make money as a writer, I can put that into buying land. And so that has been um, something that I've been able to do with this book. Well, and if your book does well and all of the other books that are coming out about farming do well, then maybe there's going to be a whole new genre of literature that will spawn land ownership across the land as we um, um, all learn about each other's stories and take courage from each other's successes and um, get a move on and make it happen. Now, um, this farm is in um, a place where there are now many other farms starting up. Can you talk about the kind of the succession, the social succession that's happened here since you guys got here and the kind of, you know, this. Tonight we're going to have a meeting at the Grange Hall to talk about doing a Greenhorns Mixer there. And, you know, they're just getting their act together and got their commercial kitchen and stuff. So maybe just give a little um, narration of what it's been like to be here and, and be kind of like a first wave young farmers in this valley. Um, when we got here, there weren't, um, there weren't many farms in our area doing direct marketing, um, and there weren't yo many young farmers. There weren't many young people at all, actually, in our little town. Um, but we arrived here just sort of as the wave of localism was starting to crest. And so I think we were um, very lucky in our timing. Um, and we've also been very extraordinarily lucky to have amazing people come through working for us here. Um, so two of our three first employees um, are now farming down the road about three miles away from here, and they're working a team of horses also. Um, and... Uh, it's just beautiful to see um, to see their farm start up, and to also just have that um, uh, the the energy of two farms doing similar things, you know, produces uh, makes it easier on both farms. Synergy is what I'm looking for. That's the word. <laughs> We've got a little horse-drawn synergy going on in the neighborhood, um, and I hope that we see more of that. Um, it's certainly a beautiful place to live and a great place to farm. So. Hoping we're going to see more and more people in the area start up small farms. Well, it certainly seems from all these people who are coming to apply for your open job openings and the rumors around the country of Essex Farm, have you heard Essex Farm is hiring, <laughs> um, which I've been hearing. Um, so, so having more than one farm in a place and then more than, one, more than two and then more than three is obviously a part of what um, is exciting in a, in a region. And this region, this part um, of New York is right across the lake from Vermont where there's a much higher density of farms near Burlington and Shelburne and 
um, when I was talking to a kind of 60s generation farmer who said, oh, yeah, you know, Essex is kind of like how it was in Vermont 30 years ago, and the land is still more affordable, although not totally affordable, um, but, but more affordable. And it does feel like I'm meeting more and more kind of little regions like this that are like second, second wave or second grade city um, type places. How would you characterize the um, market opportunities um, in those kind of further out from yuppie dollar or whatever, yeah. earn, earner dollar? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we moved here, that was, uh, for me, that was my big concern. Like, <clears throat> it's not a, an agriculturally or in any way progressive part of the world. It's a very, very small town um, that's surrounded by other small t- towns. So even though land prices were um, good and cheap when we moved here, um, we were thinking there might not be a market. Um, Mark's philosophy has always been, if you build it, they will come. And indeed, they came. Um, we started off with seven members our first year, and we have about 150 now. Um, and considering the sparse population around us, that's kind of amazing. <clears throat> um, and I think it speaks more to you know, what's happening everywhere now with people being more aware of what they're eating and, and where their food is coming from. I, I, I believe now, I agree with Mark, that um, you can find a market pretty much anywhere you decide to build your farm. You just have to, um, sometimes you just have to go looking for it kind of hard. Um, and, and certainly that was true of our community. They, they supported us from the very beginning, and we feel really blessed. Well, they're probably not only, you may feel blessed, but they're probably feeling pretty well fed. <laughs> this whole I've heard about this free choice um, system and what it means basically is it's not like all your food is in one little bin and it's been weighed out and carefully measured. It's like you pile up your bin full of what you want, um, which is an entirely different um, feeling and a feeling that is a feeling that many of us are privileged to get only because we work for it um, on a farm and that incredible abundance that... Um, is so incredible. Is so addictive that you are willing to bust your ass, um, you know, every day because it is very compelling. And you, in your book, talk a lot about that abundance. And um, as someone who's really also passionate about this work, was it was instantly the thing I related to. I mean, also the having, you know, chasing sexy farmer men around um, is pretty compelling. But but t- let's talk about uh, the abundance theory and how that um, how that played out here. Yeah, one of the um, main tenets of the farm is that we want everybody who's a member here to be able to eat like a farmer because, let's face it, there's nothing better in the world than to, you know, stand in the middle of your field and look out and just be surrounded by amazing food. And once you've tasted it, you, you can't stop. You don't ever want to go back. And so that's one of, um, that's one of the things that we try to provide for our members. Um, the, the succession of um, going from a sort of, box-style vegetable CSA to this free-choice um, full, full diet model was mostly Mark's um, succession. He was farming in Pennsylvania and was running a vegetable CSA, and he, um, he decided that instead of, you know, boxing up his produce, he would let people come in and take whatever vegetables they wanted up to a certain weight limit. And then he realized that people weren't really taking anything more or less every week, um, and that people eat what they're going to eat, um, and so that there would be no harm in taking those limits off and letting people choose what they want. Um, and we just basically expanded that model and made it <clears throat> free choice here, um, but it, it includes the meats and the eggs and the everything, 
we do have to put limits on certain things like maple syrup that are perennially popular, um, and you can never have enough maple syrup to make people happy. So um, we do limit things like that. But um, if things are abundant, we want to share that abundance. And, yeah, it is. It's one of the best things about farming, and it's a great feeling to just feel like that you're living in a, in a place of plenty and that everybody's going to eat. Everybody's going to eat it. Everybody's going to eat without math. That's the part that makes me so happy. And, you know, and this, I feel like um, a little bit to the extreme here, and, you know, obviously, you know, Mark is larger than life, and you are, as a team, just powerfully kind of poetic in the way that you are bringing your instincts um, to build this particular institution. And it speaks to the creativity of designing your own business along the lines that you that you like. And, you know, La la la, be the change you wish to see in the world. Well, build the business you wish to eat from in the world, and the business you want to work on, and the, and the business you want to work on um, in the world. And and I really, I do feel that is an indicate an, um, typical of this generation to really imagine wildly um, a, what what kind of a place you want to make, and then re- literally, you know, build the rose arbor and 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 plant the roses, and then walk under it the rest of your life. Which is, um, you know, obviously different from sitting in a subway with your I- with your iTunes plugged in your ears. Um, what's hard about living rurally for you, who was a city girl for so long? Um, well, I just want to make you one have comment. To think about it. <laughs> I do have to think about it. I just got back from the city, and I still love the city. I didn't leave the city because I didn't like the city. I left because farming was more compelling. Um, I do miss. Uh, walking down the street and hearing five different languages in two blocks, and I miss ethnic food, and I miss, um, you know, the the art house movie theaters, and I miss um, I miss bars. <laughs> you know, it's, there's not really a choice of bars around here. Um, but all in all, I think um, what we have here is richer than the life that I had in the city. Um, you know, in the city, all of my friends were. Um, my age and sort of educated the same way that I'm educated and, and did basically the same thing and thought pretty much the same way. And here in a town of 700 people, you really don't have um, that kind of latitude to pick and choose your friends. And so you, you begin to understand what a true community is, which is everybody interacting with everybody. Um, and that's a very rich existence, and I'm, I'm really grateful that I have it. Everybody um, interacting with everybody and everybody kind of knowing everybody, everybody's whole world such that you can't really get away with bullshit. That's been one of the things about living agriculturally that was new to me, especially coming from a city place where it feels like, you know, when you go to college or you go to a new town, you can kind of redefine who you are and what you're doing. But when you're in one place and, and attached to it through farming, you know, you have to show up at meetings, and you have to be a good, you know, a good kid, and 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 your reputation becomes something that you really, you know, cherish. Um, and I think it's really important for us as we're all, you know, entering this profession and really having to be serious about the finances of it, and serious about finding your partner, and serious about finding your land. There's also a seriousness in relationship um, with with you know whoever happens to be around, and pretty much everyone. Um, that's it's a, um, a seriousness that all of humanity has has always faced, and that we only think really recently become alienated from in our culture. 
Um, and because it's kind of so invisible, it doesn't get talked about, and I still don't have the words to talk about it, but um, it is kind of one of those things that, that starts to um, emerge in your consciousness. Um, what about raising a family while being with so many other people and having this kitchen is your space, you don't have a private space. You do have a private space upstairs. Just like um, for those of us who are in the early part of our career, pre-baby, and you think, well, how could I possibly do all this and then also, you know, diapers? <laughs> you know, you can't do everything. Um, children have taught me that. Um, we just had our second baby. She's two months old now, and we have a three-year-old daughter named Jane. Um and I definitely don't farm as hard as I did before kids. You know, there's um, there's definitely a um, a trade off in, and it's a beautiful trade off. I wouldn't certainly wouldn't do it any other way. But um, but I'm not as hardcore at it. You know, 16 hours a day like I used to be. And part of me misses that. And I look forward to the time that the kids are going to be you know able to to do those kinds of days in the field, and we'll we'll do it as a family. Um, that said, I think that it's possible to raise children who, you know, can go to the field with you at a pretty young age. Um, when this new baby was about six weeks old and I felt like I was losing my mind, um, my friend who grew up in South Africa came over and um, I was standing there in tears just lamenting the fact that I couldn't get anything done because this baby had to be held all the time and blah, blah, blah. And she said, do you have a bath towel? <laughs> I said, Yes. And she said, watch this. And she flipped the baby over her shoulder and wrapped the bath towel around her. And she could, you know, move her arms and do anything that she wanted to do with this little tiny baby strapped onto her back. And, and you know, people do that all over the world. So I'm committed to the idea of, of farming with children. I think it's good for um, the children, and I think it's definitely good for me. If I don't get out into the field once a day, I start getting kind of crazy. So I think it's good to train children from a young age to, uh, to be good agrarians. At least until they know how to weed for themselves. Um, well, and I think major a major a major bonus of being a farmer is having that opportunity to to, to raise your children without having to watch them run into the street or be minding them all the time. And these kids who grow up on farms and they're like this tall and they have such um, a sense of themselves and what's the word? They're self possessed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course they can help. They have um, they have an amazing sense of their place in the whole cycle of life and death. You know, our daughter, um, some people find this horrifying, but our daughter has been witness to, um, you know, butchering her whole life since she was an infant, and it's just part of her existence here. She knows where her food comes from because she sees it from hoof to table, um, and I think that gives them a kind of um, realistic idea of the preciousness of of their own lives. I mean, she could never, of course, articulate that idea, but I think she has it in her bones. I know that I've gained it since I became a farmer. Um, well, let's talk about butchering, because you guys do butcher in a very beautiful, dramatic way. Um, let's talk about hogs and what they eat and what they do in their life and in their death. Um, our hogs are on pasture um, most of the year. They come inside. Our breeding stock comes inside. Um, during the very worst parts of winter um, so that we can sort of keep them well-fed and, and sheltered. But um, most of our hogs are raised on pasture. Um, they farrow outside in farrowing huts. And um, 
They are hogging down, as we speak, um, an unbelievably beautiful, I don't know, five-acre piece of field corn. So um, they're living on um, corn and pasture that we planted for them and a lot of extra skim milk, and they are very, very happy pigs at the moment. They're, um, they're just beautiful, fat, young hogs, and I think, um, you know, I think they have had pretty much the best life a pig could wish to have. Um, they're running out there with their litter mates and their mamas and their buddies and um, doing what hogs do. Um, when it's time for them to be slaughtered, um, Courtney, who's our butcher these days, um, takes her 22 out to the field and gives them an extra special treat and um, shoots them in the head and then cuts um, the neck to bleed them out. Um, and then she brings them back here to our butcher shop to, um, to gut them, skin them, and um, make the primal cuts. And you guys don't scald them in the way that a lot of, of us do. You guys strip the skin. What, what's the reason for that? I can also talk to Mark about it, but what's, what's the reason for that? Um, mostly that it's, it's easier and um, we lose a minimal amount of uh, fat in that skinning process, but it's minimal. And, you know, what we save in, in the labor of, you know, dipping, scraping, scalding um, is worth it to us. We have also in the past scalded. Um, some of our pigs have, have been scalded, but um, we haven't done that in, a, in a, probably a year at least now. We've been doing skinning. Um, we do about, well, probably about 50 hogs a year, um, between 40 and 50 hogs a year. So it's a lot of, it's a lot of pigs, and it would be a lot, of, a lot of extra work if we were scalding them. Man, that's a lot. You know, and then there's 20 cows in the barn. And then there's a team of gray, fabulous. What kind of horses are those? Those are Tim's Percherons, the grays. Oh my lord, those are Tim's horses. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And then and then calves in the back with the bicycles, and it's a super fabulous barn that goes on and on and on. And then how many chickens? Um, let's see. We have about right now. Both of our flocks are still with us. We're about to um, slaughter one flock for stew birds. Um, because they're finishing up their lane. So we have about mm, probably 150 in the older flock and probably about 200 in the younger flock. Um, but that 150 is, is going to be stu- in the freezer in the not-too-distant future. Right now we just have a lot of eggs. <laughs> okay, so, so now you get a sense of this farm and you get a sense of um, why they're doing it and you get a little bit of a sense of the book, but we haven't quite exactly summarized the book and explained to everybody why they ought to buy it for their mom. <laughs> Um, particularly if their mom isn't quite yet totally turned on to um, their farming ideas um, or aunt or grandmother. I think it's a lady's book. It's a little bit like, you know, I think it's going to fall into the, that demographic of eat, pray, love, and um, the Barbara King Solver books. I think it's going to sell out every store. Wow, and it's super good. And um, But what can you do though? your little, like, Press blurb summary way. Um, the book is about my time leaving New York and meeting Mark and falling in love with him and with farming. Um, and then it goes through the course of our first year here together, um, which was the sort of difficult and very satisfying transition between being a city person and being a farmer. Um, I think one of the things that I tried to get across in the book is um, that farming is both this unbelievable romantic journey that we all hope it is, and it's also 
just knuckle-busting hard work and can be also um, a pretty, pretty ugly at times. And it's both of those things together, and I think that's what makes it so precious. Um, I think the book is for anybody who's ever thought about radically changing their life. Um, I didn't meet Mark until I was 32, so I was not a, a spring chicken. You know, I wasn't a 22-year-old, you know, looking around with what I wanted to do with my life. It just kind of um, happened at a time when most people had settled into their groove. Um, and, yeah, I hope that people enjoy it. Thanks for the, thanks for the plug, Severin. Oh, shucks. <laughs> it's so good. So, anyway, it's called uh, This Dirty Life. The Dirty Life. The, the Dirty Life. And it... Um, and it is, and it is available on the bookshelves. And if you don't go there, you can go to um, Powell's Bookstore and online and order it. And you will see it. It's reviewed also on our on our blog. And is there anything else we should talk about? If anybody's interested to know about farming up in the Adirondacks, there's a wonderful organization around here that they should know about. What's it called? Oh yeah, it's called Adirondack Harvest. Mm-hmm. So if you're intrigued by all this and you've read the book and you want to farm in the Adirondacks and you're totally on it and you've been working out, then you should um, get in touch with Adirondack Harvest and see what apprenticeship opportunities may be here in this region. And, and sure enough, there is, there is still land um, and, and opportunities here um, and land all other places as well. Well, thank you so much, Kristen, for having us here. Um, do you want to have anything last to say? I just want to say thanks to Severin for her good work, and it's great to have you here. Thank you all. Thank you all for listening, and um, please do stay in touch with us on the blog, www.thegreenhorns.wordpress.com. We have many, many things going on all the time, and this week is the Young Farmers Conference at Stone Barn Center, where we'll be screening greenhorns, and we'll be screening greenhorns and screening greenhorns and screening greenhorns all next year, so... Stay in the loop so you get to see it for free. Otherwise, you're going to maybe have to buy it at some point. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye.